Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Leslie Gray Streeter. Leslie is an author, veteran journalist, and speaker whose memoir, Black Widow, was published in March 2020. Until recently, she was the longtime entertainment and lifestyle columnist and writer for the Palm Beach Post. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, and a University of Maryland graduate, she and her work have been featured in the Washington Post, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Atlantic, the Today Show, Sirius XM, O, the Oprah Magazine, and more. She lives with her son, Brooks, and her mother, Tina, in her hometown of Baltimore, which she moved back to last summer. She's a slow runner, an amateur vegan cook, and a true crime and law and order enthusiast. She's a not bad guitar player, but she sometimes sings loud over the bad notes. (laughs) Me too. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. I want to start by um, uh, acknowledging the subtitle of your book, which I just adore, A Sad, Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the Title. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I avoid that. You know, I'm a grief counselor in the rest of my life and I avoid that word journey like the plague because it's it's got it's lost all meaning. (laughs) It's like it's words like curate, you know, like that's uh, or artisanal. I know those are words that have like you say them so much doesn't mean a lot to me. Although I always do say to people when I speak particularly that if there are so many people to whom that word resonates, to whom that word is an apt description for their progress through their grief. So if that is, I don't mean to make fun of it. Like it's not valid. I'm not like this hip person going, going, I reject anything that's fuzzy or, or cute or heartfelt. I'm not that person. It's just that it was too pat a word to describe what I went through, you know? I I feel as if it's gotten this connotation. I I have nothing about people that use the word for sure. But for me, the connotation is sort of heroic as opposed to just putting your feet on the ground and putting one foot in front of the other, you know, and seeing where where you go. it's, It's gained some different meaning over time, I feel. I do too. And it it denotes to me, once again, I I can be wrong, but there's a kind of nothing. I've gone in a spiritual, you know, path or whatever, but it it denotes this sort of like woo woo in a very kind of, to me, superficial way. Like it's the kind of thing that people who speak very softly and (laughs) and there's, and there's butterflies and, white lights. And I don't know, once again, I know I'm insulting people and I don't mean to. Apparently neither of us are quite like that. (laughs) We are not like that. And once again, I felt like I wanted to write the book 
that I did not see when I was going through this initially. And I did not see a lot of books that were like, you know what, this sucks. This sucks and you don't want to do it. And it's not heroic. It's not like particularly pleasant. It's a thing that you get through because you don't want to die yourself. And that's it. And then if you come through it with some really great understanding or something that can help people, that's amazing. That's like an added plus, huh? It's an added plus. It's like, like I said, journey to me sounded too much like something that was neat and put together and, and like mapped out, you know, (laughs) like getting on a plane, as we were talking about before we got on air, getting on a plane and and going somewhere, which usually not in the times we were talking about, but usually you get on the plane and you get off at your destination. <laughs> you get there, your bags get there. It's on time. It's the same day. Um, Cheryl and I were talking basically about what's happening out with, with air travel where it's a toss up. You know, like when I have people waiting for me, I always say to them, listen, this is when the plane is supposed to land. Listen to me very carefully. This is when they say I'm going to be there. That might not happen. Check check before you drive. Check before you drive to meet me. I will try to text you. And lately, I guess it's a boon for the different airlines because I now do get the Wi-Fi. I pay for the (laughs) Wi-Fi just in case. So you can communicate. That's funny. That's funny. You know, the other thing that really, really stands out about your book for me. So uh, uh, here's a short story. Uh, Before my wife got sick, had a long illness and then died, I had no sense of humor. Uh, I actually developed a sense of humor in that period of my life, which people find weird, but maybe you can understand it. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) Um, But you told this entire, it sounds as if you already had that kind of sense of humor about life. I I have always been funny. Um, I remember like in, I guess my senior year in high school, I had always been the person in plays who was like, you know, stand in number two, person in the background, number three. And then we were doing a version, a musical version of Aristophanes, the birds, which is just as bad as you might think it is. And that someone had written specifically for the high school. They thought it was good. Well, they'd written it. They were friends of my teacher and they were like, oh, this is going to be great. We did not do great. I don't know if it ever went anywhere, but the story is I was auditioning for, it was not a, it was a musical, but I was auditioning for a part that was not musical. And it was like this crazy priestess. And I just kind of imagined that I was Phyllis Diller doing it. And my teacher who had known me for four years, had never really considered me for much more than background, looked at me and said, Leslie, are you funny? <laughs> and I went, I think so. It's like, it had never occurred to her that I was funny. I know what that meant. Cause she's such an actress that it, that was a compliment and so I embraced that for the rest of my writing career and the rest is my me career. That was, you know, 1988. So it's been a very long time. So I already had a sense of humor. I always wrote, I already wrote like funny uh, movie reviews and funny columns and blah, blah, blah. So, and things about dating. And even after Scott and I got married, I wrote like humorous things about like the first time I took a road trip and all these other things. So when he died, and I thought, oh, Lord, once I realized I was going to write about it, it just came out that way. It just kind of opened my mouth in it and started typing. And it came out bittersweet and funny. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what I do. You know, let's give people a little taste of that. Can we? Um, yes. At, because if you can, if you can uh, 
managed to share deep pain and grief at the same time as being funny right out of the gate when you're experiencing the loss, that's pretty awesome to me. So can you share that part of the book about um, when Scott died? Um, that's like the, um, when the paramedics come, sure. Okay. Um, okay. Listen, ma'am, says the very patient paramedic. He's just materialized behind me in our dark driveway where I am on the phone trying to explain to my mother that something very bad is happening to my husband, Scott. I don't know how long I've been out here or how long it took the ambulance to arrive. I can't even tell you how long the paramedics have been working on my husband who through the window I can see lying face up on the dining room floor with determined, helpful men doing chest compressions on him. I cannot fully fathom how I got here on this parking lot. All I can tell you is this. My Scotty, who had not been feeling well for a few days, got up in the middle of the night to pee. He noted that our almost two-year-old son, Brooks, was sleeping soundly across the hall and asked if I wanted to make out. I don't turn down twilight makeouts, so I agreed. Then we started kissing until he stopped me. He never stopped me and said that something was wrong. I turned on the light and saw Scott's head shaking, kind of like a blender that keeps rumbling three seconds after you turn it off. Wasn't really awake yet, so I couldn't quite understand what was happening, what I could not stop from happening. I can't tell you how much time passed, 30 seconds or 100 years, but as quickly as Scott had started shaking, he stopped moving. What's happening? I half screamed, half pleaded. Scott didn't answer. All I know is that he let out two desperate and voluntary breaths, then he didn't breathe again. Down the hall behind them are baby Brooks, who I'm remembering has a social worker visit planned today, part of the process of legally trying to adopt him. He's hopefully still asleep. He loves firemen and has no idea there are several in our house right now. That might disappoint him if he finds out, but he's glad he's sleeping through this. I wish I were sleeping through it. Mommy, I have to go. The paramedic wants to talk to me, I say to my mother trying to sign call, sound calm and convince her, help us on the other end of the phone in Little Rock. This looks bad, but I want her to believe, I want to believe that this is an emergency that's going to turn out okay. Denial is a hell of a drug. And I can tell by the sweet paramedic's face that it is not okay. Nothing is. Takes a deep breath and starts a spiel I can tell he has given too many times. We've been working on your husband for a while and there's no electrical activity in his brain. And we have to do this breathing for him. We're going, to all, we're going to do all we can do, but you should maybe start calling your family and your spiritual advisor. No electrical activity, I repeat, as if there weren't a lot of other important and terrible words and concepts in that sentence. He nods. He knows I don't know what to do, that my brain is protecting me by not immediately processing what he's telling me. Spiritual advisor, I continue. And behind the sweet paramedic, my front door swings open, and he's car- they're carrying Scott out on a stretcher hurriedly to the ambulance. I can't see his face because it's covered in a mask, but there are reflections of red and blue light streaking onto the brick pavers on the driveway. I want to throw up because nobody brings up the damn spiritual advisor if there's any hope. Nice paramedic seems to know I'm not absorbing all of this but he's got a job to do. So he instructs me to call a friend to come and take him to the ER and get someone to watch the baby. Do not drive. He says, and I think I must look a mess. I must be a mess. I call my friend Lauren and ask her to come with me. I know I have to get someone to stay with Brooks. who has been sleeping away, not knowing that the world is disintegrating. 
I've already called my twin sister Lynn in Annapolis and I feel bad for waking her up because there's nothing she can do right now. All I'm doing is worrying her. I'm afraid we shall be very worried. I want to run and grab my baby and jump into the ambulance with my husband, but I have to wait for other people. And that makes me angry. This thing, whatever it is, is happening without my permission. And I'm so powerless. I can't even drive myself to the hospital. Lauren and her husband get there after what seems like hours, but probably isn't. I pull on a dress and carefully open Brooks's bedroom door. He's still asleep. By now it's like four in the morning and any parent in her right mind wants her toddler to stay that way. But I have this weird need to pick him up to hold that little body next to mine and absorb the energy of the one person in this house who doesn't yet know that his father is dying. So I breathe him in one last time and then down the hall, bring him down the hall and shove him into John's arms. He wakes up and starts wailing like I've broken some spell. I'm crushed. It's crushing me. But we got to go. My Aunt Debbie, the Reverend, calls as Lauren drives us to the hospital to find out where we're go whatever we're going to find, and she prays over the phone. I try to find some meaning in her words that will magic away what I know is happening. I believe in magic and God and miracles. I want a miracle. Please give me a miracle. We get out of the car. The parking lot is quiet and dark and empty. It's too quiet. I want EMTs to be <clears throat> frantically rushing around and calling all the doctors and nurses and yelling, STAT! and demanding crucial labs or whatever. I want them to be loud and busy saving Scott's life. I want there to still be hope. Inside the sliding doors of the emergency room, a scared looking man, the desk clerk maybe, is waiting for us. I don't like how he's looking at me. This is Zervich, he says. I nod. Okay, please have a seat in that room. He says, pointing to the closed door to his right. Ah, oh, that's not good. I'm a little Lauren. That's the bad news room. They didn't say, let us take you to your husband or the doctors will tell you, be right out to tell you about your husband's condition. They want to tell me something, something bad. At first, the bad news room door won't open. It's locked because there's a doctor inside charging his phone and maybe taking a nap. I'm glad someone's getting some downtime. After he scurries out, another doctor, good looking in a forgettable TV way, comes in flanked by a few other people in scrubs and white coats that might be maybe their students. And I wonder if I'm part of a very special teaching moment. <clears throat> what happened? The doctor asks me. He is very upset. Aren't you supposed to be telling me that? Why don't you tell me what happened? I say. The doctor pauses and explains that Scott is not responsive, was not responsive when they brought him in and appears to have had a cardiac event. He was not, has not been breathing on his own, and they could not revive him. Ugh. So he's gone then, I say. There, I've said it. My voice sounds steadier than my chest feels. He's gone. He's gone. Some niceties are said. Some papers are signed. Someone hands me a plastic Ziploc bag with Scott's watch, wedding band, and delightfully gaudy gold chain inside. He needs his watch, I think. No, he doesn't, my brain says. It's okay, sweetheart. You'll catch up. That just captures that you still know what you know, but something in you isn't knowing it, isn't seeing it. <laughs> you know, I, that's shock, man. And I think that shock, you know, whatever anybody's, I mean, it, it is a obviously a physical response, it's a scientific response. You know, those of us who have some, you know, faith, you know, or, you know, spiritual you know, uh, explanations for things. I also believe it's sort of like, I used to say it's God wrapped you in bubble wrap. It's like, look, your head's, you're just being wrapped up right now. You could only, you'll only be able to understand and move <laughs> and comprehend on a very physical, very limited level. 
but you, that's what you can do because otherwise you, you can't take all that at once. You'd die yourself. You'd have a heart attack. You'd go into a state that you couldn't get out of if, you know, you weren't like kind of bubble wrapping it. I, I, I totally agree, especially with a sudden loss like that. I did not, I did not go into shock when my wife died because we'd spent 10 years talking about her dying. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't, it was not shocking. Uh, I don't know how else to really talk about it except to say that didn't seem to happen for me or anyone else who was there because mm. it had just been so hashed out in advance. Uh, I guess I consider that to have been an advantage at that moment, uh, even though the 10 years, of course, had very difficult aspects. But I did feel weirdly prepared. And um, I was shocked. I had come to terms with the fact there was no way to be prepared, but I kind of was. So then I'm putting myself in your shoes, the utter shock and out of the blueness. Yeah. Uh, it's just a gobsmack, huh? Oh, dude. I mean, it just is interesting because and I say this in the book, <clears throat> both of us, <clears throat> pardon me, in the six and a half years that we had been together at that point, had each lost a parent, had each lost a grandparent, had lost various family members and people of that nature, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins. So there had been a lot of, of grief. And so we had actually talked about at 44, we had talked about so what would you want if this happened? What would that happen? So I had some rudimentary, not written down, but rudimentary idea. You know, we both had life insurance, you know, that kind of thing. So it was at least, it was an awful shock, but at least there were some sort of bricks being laid in a path mm. I didn't understand was being laid. Yes. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't completely, I was caught off guard with the actual thing happening but there were some provisions had been made that I had made or that had been made that I had not realized why I was making them, you know? Well, and you could have been making them because you were becoming parents and oh, you know, just all being prudent and all of that, but being still prudent. it won't be relevant till, you know, five decades later or something. <laughs> I remember right before he died, he said, you should, we should up the insurance on me. It's like, I don't know if he knew like something in the back of his brain. And I didn't, of course, because I didn't want to spend the money. He's like, you should up it to like a million dollars. I'm like, who needs that? And then it's like, crap, I should have done that. Well, but you know? how would you have ever known to prioritize that? I would, nobody <laughs> would. No, see, and that, that's the thing is what you don't know. It's what I mean. I will say to people now, if I can say this without sounding like a, a defendant on law and order, um, get as much life insurance as you can, but not in a way that people will hold it against you if something happens to your spouse and someone <laughs> on law and order says, well, you know, she upped his life insurance. Yeah. Yeah. If you have the terrible luck for them to die very shortly after you up the insurance. Huh? Dude, don't do that. Well, let's come back to that in a couple minutes. It's time for our first break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's links to Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And also to my, my novel, An Ocean Between Them. To find Leslie Gray Streeter, go to lesliegraystreeter.com. Be back soon. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Leslie Gray Streeter about her book, Black Widow. And, you know, before the break, Leslie, we were, uh, you were talking about how you, you regretted not upping the insurance yeah. and that whole hindsight being 2020. And over time, I've come to think of it like uh, we kind of, our minds grapple with the things that it seems like we could have done differently um, when the actual main main subject is that we couldn't change what happened. Um, do you think that's kind of an example of that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that part of the, well, I think part of any life experience is how much you think you can control. And then you realize we really control very little of these things. Yeah. You can make plans. It's that John Lennon line, life, what happens when you're busy making other plans. And it's true. It's like you have these clear things set out. Like I'm um, sure and I were talking about the, the dangers of, flying right now that you can plan to get a certain place but it doesn't necessarily happen and there's very little you can do about it there's very little you can do about it um 
other than not go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. or, or just give which, up. And, which is a loss in a different way, isn't it? It is. And so, yeah. It, we were also talking uh, before we went on air. We've had such a big conversation before we were on air <laughs> as well as now about um, being sort of more at, at peace with that. I have really, really noticed that during covid that there's a way i say oh, okay this is what happened what what mm-hmm. what has happened mm-hmm. um what do i need to do now or or you know register the feelings and then go on to the next where a lot of people i was working with got really stuck for a while um because they they were used to being able to control their realities and suddenly they couldn't oh and for, <laughs> you know, for sure i crazy I say to so many of my um, my widow community friends that, and we agree with this, like when COVID first happened in March of 2020, we were supposed to have been going to the TAMP edition of a thing called Camp Widow, which is a thing for widowed people run by a California-based organization called Soaring Spirits International. And so at first, when no one had any idea how this was going to be, we thought, well, we can do this. Because we're widows and we can do everything, you know, we've gone, we, you know, what's a little virus where you know, we can't expose people to this. We can't do it. Um, but, and we finally did it live uh, this October in San Diego. But I think that for a lot of widowed people, you're the, a bad thing, a really bad thing has already happened to you. So everything else you kind of figure out. So we have, like you said, lived through the ultimate thing you can't control. So we have learned how to make the rest of it work. It's not good. It's not great. No one was like, woohoo, COVID, let's bring this on. Let's see what <laughs> That's this for thing's sure. about. That's you for know, sure. We weren't happy about it, but we knew we had to do it. We had to deal with it. So I think that those, my friends, widowed people, people who've had childhood drama, trauma, um, people who have gone through extreme financial losses like before this i think those are the people i knew that were like yeah we got this once again no one's happy about it there was a, a, you know a still more opportunity to add trauma to exacerbate your trauma but also there's a you've been hit with a big thing before and i guess we need to add the caveat that um i have known people who have done every last thing they possibly could to avoid all the feelings of the big loss and they don't actually develop those skills. You know, you have to actually go through it. Right. (laughs) I've got to tell you, I've met uh, a person about a month ago at the widowed conference who had spun, had been widowed for like 18 years and had spun the loss into advocacy and started this really important foundation and was sort of this light for all of these, both the people in her family and people who knew her partner and so many people, but she had not really dealt with her loss until that weekend mm. in, in any way that would, and she had avoided going to things like that for a very long time because she just went to all the action of, Action can be an avoidance, can't it? It is. And she was doing legitimately amazing things for other people, but she had avoided focusing on her loss. And when she said to this group of people, I feel like I'm starting over in a weird way because I'm finally being forced to focus just on me. My kids aren't here. 
my my partner's family, my family's not here. The other people that I've helped with my advocacy are not here. It's just me having to deal with it. I'm so glad that she has a place because some people, you're right, don't deal with that. Um, I, I'm kind of a hey, let's deal with it person. <laughs> so, which is probably a weirded was probably a weird advantage in grief. Like it you, was a. It's weird. clear in your book you didn't you didn't avoid anything. You know, you, you went through it. For it, this, sure. this is going to sound really self-serving, but I, I've been a columnist for a very long time. And so I'm used to examining my own feelings and writing about them and presenting them. So some people might say I'm self-centered and self-focused, whatever it pays my bills. I bought a house. It's fine. But um, <laughs> I have a pretty well-developed sense of what I'm, what's going on with me because I've had to, for a living, parse those feelings pretty quickly and write about them. I had an editor once say, Leslie, you're used to being the center of attention. And I said, I know. He gave you a talent for being the center of attention. And I said, I know you think that's an insult, but I refuse to make it. I, I won't let you use that as an insult, darn it. Because I believe that. And then in this case, it really helped because being able to target those feelings and then write about them was so helpful to other people. And also and- being being comfortable being I think the same same thing probably is true of me I was already studying to be a therapist uh, at that time well that's the way I do it it's very self-reflective right you have to do the work yourself I think that really helped me so having the capacity for self-reflection and acceptance of the feelings you're having is so valuable isn't it it really is and it just I think anything that encourages um, figuring out who you are, like I said, because, you know, you don't want to be that person that doesn't take time to figure it out. You know, you don't want to be that person that for whatever reason, maybe it's self-protection or because you're truly focused on other people. I've had so many conversations with women, particularly about how we are, are socialized to deal with everyone else's pain before our own. Mm, um, yes. And that we have to have that sense of putting our own oxygen masks on um, before we help other people, because otherwise you're going to drop dead because there's no oxygen. <laughs> How's that <laughs> no for oxygen. a metaphor? How's that for it, a metaphor? It's also strangely in, um, easier on other people. And I have a recent example. I told you I, I just had hip surgery. Yay, successful and wonderful. And my wife was was thinking, my current wife, my second wife, she was just going to do all do it all herself, and I said, "No, mm-mm, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm going to rely on a community of people." And she's like, "Why? I can do it." And I'm like, "So you're not going to leave the house? You're going to cook all the meals I usually cook?" You know, I just <laughs> named all the things, and and she got the point, and we were helped. So being able to surrender to help, uh, I think I think um, my wife's illness and my grief taught me that how it's, to know when when help is the thing, right? <laughs> it's it's so hard. And I talk about that in my book that there's just when something like sometimes when things happen to you, you can be a weird, like um, unpredictable mix of I want to do it by myself and I'm lying on the floor. Someone please scoop me up, um, yes. and and you can never know what part what you you're going to be at that moment because sometimes I I hate asking for help I truly hate it um because also as an overachiever you feel like if I have to ask you for help there's something wrong with me um Mm. but then there's moments where I had to ask for help because I had no other choice like literally 
when Scott died, there were all these things that I could not do. I could not reason my way around calling everybody and setting up rides from the airport for two and from the airport. Literally, my sister handled it. She showed up like I think he died around like three, four in the morning. And by 11 o'clock that morning, she was in my living room from Baltimore um, uh. to, to West Palm Beach. And then my mother showed up at one. So somehow we can't got, overestimate good people, good who, people who and, show up <laughs> and people got there like Scott's cousins got his phone. They said, hand me his phone. I said what they said, open, open the phone for me. Do you know his um, his password? And I said, yes. And they said, open his phone. We got it. And they plugged up his phone and then called everybody. You know, that's something I could not have wrapped my brain around. I could not have wrapped my brain around having those conversations or like I said, or planning, you know, who's going to stay where. And so people would just, it was like a game show. People just showed up in my house. I would open the door and there'd be somebody else there like, oh, hi, so-and-so. Yeah. And so, so crucially important, um, maybe especially having a, a young child in the house. I was sharing with you that my youngest child was about the same age, yeah. two and a half. Yeah. And, um, you know, you kind of have to keep the parent track going a little bit pretty yeah. quickly. <laughs> and so all those other things someone else can do, right? Someone else can do it. And like, is it like, even like that, like um, I got back to the house and it was still early. And so we had called the, um, I think I called the lovely people at the daycare center where he went and they were so sweet and somebody came with me in the car and I, they already knew if so I didn't have to say anything, but open the door. They said, we're so sorry. I said, thank you very much. I handed him the baby. He had no idea what was happening. Get back in the car. And another friend who's a very close friend of mine, whose son also went there, just picked him up. She called yeah. and said, tell Leslie. Yeah. You got to You got to get a minute. <laughs> you got to get a minute. Yeah. I, I I was also, um, you know, putting myself in your shoes in that regard because we knew that uh, my wife was dying. I mean, it was we. She actually had a secondary condition that told us when she'd be dying, oh um, and so we had prepared the two and a half year old, not to mention the teenager, pretty thoroughly. You know, and with stethoscopes and conversations and, you know, to be suddenly plopped in the middle of that. Um, and clearly, Brooks was incredibly close to your husband. He was. Um, that, that I was just trying to imagine, uh, trying to catch up to that. You know, what do you say you, without any time to think about it? None. And um, he was so young, you know, it wasn't a sense of like, you know, daddy's in the hospital, whatever. It's like he fell asleep that night, the night before, and he was there and he woke up in the morning and I guess he just figured, you know, he was, sometimes he was at, well, at that point he wasn't working. He was about to start a new job the next week, but it's like, Oh, where'd he go? You know, did he go to work? Did he do something, whatever. And so he asked my friend, Hey, where's daddy? She's like, I'll get mommy. She'll explain it to you. And it took oh, me months. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, right. It took me months to figure out because you tell them soft pedal things like, Oh, he's, he had to go away or he's, he's in heaven, whatever. And none that of makes that. No sense. Does it? None. And it, I think it did more, more harm than good because I mean, I really had no concept of what dead means to a, a two year old, you know, Right. I had no idea. So 
one of the things that happened very early is that I established that I needed to have therapy because this pediatrician said, listen, it's therapy's not going to do him any good because he doesn't have any concept of this, but you getting therapy, you being okay is going to be helpful to him because then he will not only feel more solid because you are solid, but he will be able to know that things are okay as such as they are, because I mean, what's really okay in that situation? Nothing, nothing is okay. It all sucks. Um, but someone should be healthy. So it might as well be me. Uh, and, it, and it can become okay over time. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think also um, uh, the weird advantage of being very comfortable with the, the subject of death did help me with the two-year-old. That's really good. Because there wasn't any way that I was deflecting the subject or, you know, <laughs> we'd, we'd had those conversations, you know, all of us. And um, I do think that helped me with her because um, I kind of sorted out, you know, death is a physical event. <laughs> it has nothing to do with love or, you know, wanting to be with someone. So we were just like very concrete about it and that seemed to work very well the the things that sometimes happen where kids ask when the ki- the person's going to come back and all that yeah, yeah 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 um that never happened um you know she was she was there when she died but that can still happen sometimes i think it was that she was clear what death is and i never would have been able to navigate that conversation that's if such it happened a blessing suddenly. It's such a blessing to to have that, you know, I, I just, how we deal with those things, I don't know if subjective is the right word, but I mean, cause there's ways to do it in ways, certainly ways not to do it. And I was just winging it, you know, I literally right. was just, what like, else were you going to do? You know, we, there's that uh, 1980s television show, the greatest American hero. And the guy who like found the suit, the flying, the superhero suit. And he had no idea how to wear it. And he was always crashing into things. That's how I felt. I felt like I was trying to help, but I was like, I'm going to fly into that billboard. I'll fly into that car. I'll fly into that road. I had no idea where I was going. I didn't know how to use it. I had this new power as a single mother. I didn't want it. They're like, oh, you'll have so much strength. Look at you. You're so strong. I'm like, I literally don't know how to do this. I literally know how to do none of this. Yeah. And what do people imagine you can do instead? That's what always puzzles me. Dude, <laughs> you know, dude. you're going to keep walking and try to figure it out, but, oh, you, don't, know. but you don't know anything. I really think that there is just such a sense sometimes that people, they have to say something. <laughs> they feel like they have to say, oh, you're I doing I guess they so think well. they're being encouraging. You think? <laughs> I, they're not, but God bless them. God bless them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a way maybe of, of um, thinking you're some other kind of person from them. Mm. This won't. This won't happen to me. This oh, happens to people truly. like you. Well, yeah, and that's. I think <laughs> everything. It's like, well, that person drove too fast. They drank too much. They wore the wrong thing. They said the wrong thing. Certainly mm. not me. All I did was wake up in the morning, make out with my husband, and that happened. So, good luck to you guys. And speaking of timing, right? Uh, right. <laughs> Let's take our second break. And listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page, to find me in any way you want to find me. And to find Leslie Gray Streeter, go to lesliegraystreeter.com. Back soon. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Network comes in. Your host is Michelle Beck, a two-time breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Leslie Gray Streeter, the author of Black Widow. And speaking of parenting, uh, it seemed like quite a good move to ask your mother to move in with you. Uh, You know, sometimes there are these pivotal moments where you just know what you need, and it kind of felt that way to me. Like, it's not convenient for her or me. No, no, but but it just, and she's still here. You know, she's downstairs in my house right now, hanging out. We were in our now third place, you know, because she lived with Scott in the place that Scott and I lived for the first four months after he died. And then we moved to another house. We lived in for four years in West Palm Beach that we considered buying. Like, now we're leaving. So I bought this house in Baltimore last year. And she's still hanging out. So I'm still happy that she's still hanging out. And, you know, I, I'm not sure my mother and I could have done that. But <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure we couldn't have. But <laughs> that's another story for another day. One thing that did stand out is your mom had direct experience. Yes. Um, of being a widow. Yeah. And I have to think that's got to have helped the navigation of kind of the emotional landscape of that. Oh, truly. Because I think because she understood it and it was recent, my dad died in 2012 and then Scott died in 2015. So it was still fairly recent for her. And I think that she understood some things like there were things she did not expect of me that other people may have expected. She didn't expect me to, she knew I was going to rebound when I rebounded. She also knows me intimately as my mother. So she knows that I am a pretty stubborn person, that I didn't want people fussing over me, that I was allergic to it and probably mean about it. I know there's some people that I was really harsh with because they wouldn't go away. Well, and and that's on them. (laughs) 
So I know, and I would try, try to, to tell people, and they don't I listen. What are you going to do? Say, please stop hovering, and they wouldn't do it. And my mother would go, Leslie is going to be okay. You have to, if she asks you to love her from right next to her on her lap, then do it. If she asks you to love her way over there, love her way over there. And I think that my mother had been through similar things that she was literally finishing her second master's, this one in nursing as my dad died. And she finished this, the, um, <clears throat> the summer after he died. So she had a lot to do and she appreciated that people were, wanted to be close to her, but she also had, had a thing she had to do. Her, her master's was her baby, and then Brooks was my baby. <clears throat> and so we had a lot to do, both of us. And I think that she did not, she was not going, hey, are you okay yet? Because right. she knew, you know, and that was crucial. And also that has something to do with the idea of holding space. That yes. that you listen to the person you're holding space for, and you don't bring your own agenda about what you think they might need or it's want, or so, you know, it's that, so hard to do that because sometimes you just want to love people. I had a yeah, he's not a great friend, and he's since been blocked. But there was a guy I was semi friends with who had been nice enough. We didn't agree with anything politically, whatever. But he was a physical trainer. <clears throat> And he decided after Scott died that he wanted to help me. He wanted to help me get in shape. This is not my friend, Victor, who's amazing, who's a friend of both Scott and I. But this guy um, wanted to help me, he said. And he decided he was going to help me. And he was pushy about it. And I was like, dude, I don't know if you and I were compatible. So he called me. I was at work. And I was sitting at my desk. And he kept talking to me. I was like, oh, he's not going to go away. So I got up and I walked to the stairway area. And I was like, listen, I just don't know if it's going to And he says, you're coming up with excuses. You're coming up with excuses. Like, dude, I haven't hired you for anything yet. This was right. making him feel better to help me. But I was like, I don't think it's going to work. And he explodes at me. Just let me help you. And I said, no, no. And I said, if this is how you train, I don't want it. <clears throat> Click. Well, and that's, that's just such a basic principle that if you're trying to guilt someone into taking your help, or f try to force them into taking your help. It's something about you, not them. Exactly. And because he felt like this poor, sad, fat person needs my help. <laughs> <laughs> not a message we need, is it? No. And hey. I'm going to, and she, she's too sad and dumb and fat to know what she needs. So I'm going to force her. I was like, if this is how you train people, I'm going to punch you in the face and no one's going to feel happy. You're, and you're going to get a bad review, <laughs> even though I never went to you. <laughs> For real. Oh, I, that would have happened. <laughs> Let's give people a little more of a taste from the book, if you would. I really appreciate it. This is a, um, a chapter called Grief Cake. This is basically the very beginning of my melodramatic widow, widow meltdown. Okay. Okay. About 10 hours before Scott died, he gave me some sake he bought at a gas station. Because we were classy that way. Brooks was adorably drooling on our friends or toddling at furniture or whatever almost two-year-olds do at daycare, which we like to call baby school. He was, acting, he was acing it. Scott had been free that day. He'd left his old tech sales job a couple of months earlier and was starting a new one in less than a week. So he was doing all those errands you frantically do during the last few days of vacation that you won't be able to do when you're back at work. He'd spend the day at a flea market about an hour south of us to buy clip-on sunglasses for his hard-to-fit prescription specs 
and proves hard to find in Baltimore sports memorabilia. His memorabilia addiction was a thing with us. Normally, I was sort of a penny-pinching winch about it because we had bills and a baby. No one needs tacky stuff like the highlight of that particular day's haul, the most wretched tie-dye raven shirt ever silkscreened in the the bowels of Hell's gift shop. (laughs) He also bought an Orioles polo shirt, which is still hanging in my closet because I can't bear to get rid of it, and some baseball cards for Brooks. To make up for the fact that he'd spent too much money, he got me the autograph of this guy who worked in the sports memorabilia shop. He had randomly played a bit part in Last of the Mohicans and the aforementioned gas station Saki. This was our pattern. When Scott thought I was going to be mad at him for spending more than 100 bucks on some sports-related impulse buy, he always threw in something for me or the baby, so wouldn't be mad. As mad. Of course, that gift added to the tally of money he'd spent that day, but it was usually something personal and sweet enough to slightly diminish my anger. Slightly. Happily, the sake worked like a cheap boozy charm. It was the gift equivalent of buying a magnet for your mom at the airport 10 minutes before you board, but his thoughtfulness and the delightful tackiness of it took the edge off of it. Yes, I'm a sucker. Also, he was so happy about this new job and this new chapter that I toned the penny pinching down several notches and just accepted all the joy to come. Sigh. The very next day, when too many people were standing in my ran around somberly in my living room, <clears throat> I find the sake in the, in the refrigerator just where Scott left it. Drinking it seems like the right thing to do, and being sort of buzzed seems like the nice thing to be at this moment. So now I'm in the middle of my living room, barefoot and slugging sake out of a bottle. I'm sure I'm a mess. Don't care. My sister Lynn sees me. Leslie, she barks. Stop that. Lynn, who loved my husband something fierce, is in her own state of shock, her own morning haze. But at this moment, her unofficial role is she who holds it together. The job requirements include making sure that I don't make a spectacle of myself or tarnish the family name. Normally, that might be important to me, but right now, I don't much care. My husband bought me this sake, I say, aware that I sound unhinged. It's the last thing he ever bought me, and I am going to drink it. Lynn's eyes, Scott always referred to them as Disney princess-like, widen in shock. I feel awful, as no one ever wants to hurt Princess Jasmine's feelings. And I also know that I've spent my life caring about my, how my feelings affected other people. But right now, I only have to care about what I want, and what I want to do is drink this damn sake. We're entering an awful, awful period. The grief cake period, so named for all the cake and booze and carbs and anything not nailed down that I will consume. During the next two months, I will gain 10 pounds, stop sleeping, and become way too familiar with the staff at the dive bar across the street, right next to the pie shop, as well as the staff at the pie shop. Everyone's going to notice, everyone's going to worry, but most are going to let it go because the crappiest thing in the world has happened to me. No one knows how to make it right, and they can't crawl into my grief with me because they can't, and because nobody would want to, because it smells like booze and feet and old cake in here. During this blessed and messy grief cake period, I'm not a lot picky about the source of the indulgence. My friend Melanie, who materializes him for the night Scott dies, keeps showing up with presents throughout that awful week like a gift-bearing sprite. At one point, she's next to me with a bottle of Fireball whiskey, the little devil on the label peeking out of the brown paper bag she's holding. Fireball, to me, tastes like Red Hot's and Vengeance, so I'm skeptical it'll help. You look like a wino, I say, as she opens the creaky screenless door to our backyard and beckons me to follow her. Really going to just 
be out here slugging fireball out of a paper bag with all these people in the house. She smiles, chugs a chug, and hands it to me. Yes, we are. And who the hell would blame you right now? You can do whatever you want. She has a point. Isn't fireball the thing for drunk 21-year-olds? I'm sure it is, she says, and then when you drink it, it will be a sad for sad a thing for sad 44-year-olds. I look inside at all the people milling around, trying to be useful and take away at least a little of this mountain of hurt. And I look back at my friend trying to do the same thing with this ridiculous bottle. I'm tired of thinking of being sad. I take a slug. Ow! I say, wiping the mouth like I've been bitten. That's awful. Well, in my defense, I like it. Melanie says, taking her bottle back. And now you feel something, don't you? Yes, I feel like someone has just blasted liquefied cinnamon into my lungs with a blowtorch, but it beats abject misery. Ah, you know that uh, I've met a few people in about 400 <laughs> guests over the last eight years. It's almost exactly eight years, just past the anniversary. Uh, a few a few guests in that time who immediately got active, like the way they got through grief was an exercise program or, you know, changing their diet or taking up meditation. Uh, most people, that's not the first stop. No. Um, <laughs> most no. people, the first stop is, you know, drinking and cake and, and sleeping too much or too little. Wouldn't oh, you agree? Well, I do because at that moment, literally, this was a couple days later. I mean, I took walks and stuff, and people were worried about me, and they're staring at me or whatever. But the not wanting to feel the thing, and I know that, you know, I'm an entertainment reporter by nature, so I write a lot about movies and melodrama and stuff. So that's a thing in the movie, like the, the, the Oscar montage where the widow is crying and sad and got the bottle in her hand or she's throwing things or whatever. And that's a thing, man. I had not realized <laughs> how much of a thing that was. Yes. Because my mother was very chill. She, my dad had been sick for a while and she expected it. It was so awful. And you don't, it's never, once that person really is ever coming home, that's that thing. But she had some work to do and literally to finish her master's and she had a lot going on. And with me, I'm like, well, there are people here and I'm really sad and people keep insisting on bringing food to my house. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And then you, then you figure out what you want to do later. I mean, that's, that's the usual, you know, how you actually, how much of that you do or don't want to do comes well, a little later. What a privilege, I have to tell you, it was to have so many people who were around me to catch me so I was not... Because there are so many people who have nobody and nothing and you can't. Fall isn't apart. that isn't that really hard to imagine? It is for me anyway. We had huge amounts of community and uh, I think that's a major difference. Uh, you know, economics aside, all kinds of other things aside, people is the deciding factor in some ways. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And people who don't have them do better if they get some, right? They do. There's a line <laughs> from the, the second Sex in the City movie was so terrible. And there's this really indulgent, terrible line where um, two of the women, Charlotte and um, Miranda, are they're in this like ridiculous hotel suite that's the size of eight mansions in Morocco, I think, or Abu Dhabi, wherever they were. And they're basically both of them are, are mothers who have partners who are at that moment at home with those partners. They also have nannies 
and other people and they're going, oh, it's so, it's so hard to do to be a mother, but you know, we have help. And it was like, I think it was their way of acknowledging that other people exist. They go, here's the women who don't have help. I'm like, you think we care about that? We think we want that toast? I'll throw that bottle at you. It just was so <laughs> like completely clueless about, yeah, because that's, that's what we need right now is pity from people boozing their way across Morocco right now. It's like, what you should do is like, give that money and give me a nanny. You know, I just, it was so terrible. But I, I think that, yeah, there, you get to this moment where you does feel like, I've had people say to me, well, my widowhood was worse than yours because I had, you had support and I didn't. And there's no comparison, is there? And I, I love, I love ending there. False, false. Uh, just let people be where they're at. That's let what I say. Be, if you can Thank you them. so much. Yes. Thank you so much for being with me today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Uh, you can find Leslie Grace Streeter at lesliegraystreeter.com. Next week, I'll have Katie Russell Newland, author of A Season with Mom, Love, Loss, and the Ultimate Baseball Season. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.